Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture with me, Robert Bounds. It's been so good to be back out and about enjoying galleries and museums again over the last few weeks and months. And so it feels extra wonderful to bring back our art review, which we've been unable to do for the last year or so. The exhibition up for discussion today is a major retrospective of the Swiss artist Sophie Teuber Arp, which just opened at Tate Modern. Straddling the worlds of art and design, Teuber Arp was at the forefront of 20th century avant-garde and a key part of Zurich's Dada movement by the end of World War I. She danced at the Cabaret Voltaire, created marionettes for the stage and designed the interiors of the Orbet building in Strasbourg, while also creating her famous abstract paintings and Dada heads. She lived across Europe, Munich, Zurich and Paris, and this exhibition traces her life, which was cut short after she tragically died of carbon monoxide poisoning aged 53 in 1943. It's a vast show with a huge amount of work spanning paintings, drawings, textiles, puppets, Pits, interior design, furniture and personal artefacts that piece together her vibrant career. Joining me then to discuss Sophie Teuber Arp on the programme today are Ossian Ward, Head of Content at the Listen Gallery and the art writer Amma Rose Abrams. Um, welcome both to the programme. Lovely to have you here, Ossian. Hello. Welcome back to the fold. It's been a while. Oh my God, I've aged. <laughs> I didn't recognise you. It's like sitting opposite Gandalf. I know. That's a terrible Wizened. thing to say. Wizened. You look, you look, you look wonderful. A year, the year has been kind to you. Yeah, apparently that year counted. So I am actually a year older, although I wasn't prepared for that. When oh really? My birthday hit. I was like, that's it. That's the end of that year. But apparently it did count. It did count. You haven't gone Liz Taylor and decided just to deduct numbers from your your um, age. Or yeah. Joan Collins is it? I can't um, remember who. Yeah, it is. we'll change the biography afterwards. Absolutely, the Wikipedia pages <laughs> will all go. Go backwards. Go backwards one year, like clock, like stopping a clock on a dodgy second-hand car. And Rose Abrams, welcome to the program for the first time. It's lovely to have you here. Oh, it's lovely to be here. Thanks. Me and Austin are trying to be the providers of good vibes. Okay. It's, it's not. It's it's because it's it's strange sometimes to dip your toe into a new radio program. It is, but good vibes are important. They make all the difference. Yeah. So I've introduced Sophie Toiber Arp as Sophie Toiber Arp. Amma Rose. I'm saying Toiba. Toiba, okay. Austin. I don't know if I can pronounce it now. I feel like under pressure. Okay. Tauba, Toiba. Okay. Tauba. Previously yeah. known probably as Hans Arp or Jean Arp's wife. Yes, I saw that you know. referred to by yeah. Peggy Guggenheim yeah. in something in the catalogue where it was like, yeah, Jean Arp was there and his wife. It's yeah. like, okay, so so welcome to the retrospective at Tate Modern of Jean Arp's wife, yeah, the most exactly. sexist thing it's possible to say. Yeah. Let's start. What sort of period are we in with Sophie Teuber and what is happening around Sophie Teuber, Ossian, at this time? Okay, I mean, that's really interesting. We're in the modernist era. We're squarely in the teens and the 20s, you know, and uh, it's all happening, whether it's Dada, which is part of what she's into, or all the kind of constructivism you know, it's all happening around her. And in a funny kind of way, maybe that's why the modernist history books passed her by, because there was so much else going on. So, yes, she was making paintings. Yes, she was making constructions, a little bit like her husband, hands up. But she was also doing all these other things alongside, whether that was textiles, actual jewellery, or, you know, making marionettes, all those things you mentioned they weren't really happening at the same time. I mean, you know, mm. you saw some of the Dada cabaret, the theatre, you know, the, those things that she created, which were very much of that time, that sort of, 
it's almost tubism, you know, the kind of rounded shapes, yeah. the rounded heads, the rounded marionettes that she was creating. But maybe that's kind of why she moved through the slipstream without being properly recognised at the time. And, you know, that, there's a passage where her husband, after she's died, tries to kind of collate her catalogue raisonné and understandably perhaps thinks, OK, I'll just stick to the like the famous paintings and the things that... And I won't include any of the textiles, any of the tapestries, any of the strange objects that mm-hmm. she made or the cafes she designed or the theatre sets because that's not what, you know, us modernists are striving towards. We're right. looking for pure abstraction, pure painting. And she, you know, it's, it's a hoary old tale, unfortunately, of what happened to a lot of women in that era. And... It's told very well, but it, it's a very elegant show. It's done very beautifully. It's given sort of her proper weight. And, yeah, that's where we are in the mid-teens and 20s of Paris, Strasbourg, Zurich. She kind of shifted all over. I wondered, Amarose, if you could fill us in about what we mean by Dada. We've used that in the avant-garde and modernism and things, which we, we, we probably know a little bit about. But Dadaism, I sort of sometimes get it confused with the Bauhaus and this sort of structured yeah. idea of we're going to, right, today we're going to have fun and wear boiler suits and be <laughs> slightly spooky, actually. Yeah. But what do we mean by Dada? Um I think what we mean by Dada is specifically, it was an international movement connected via making publications and things like that. But essentially, it came out of Zurich Mm -hmm. and it was a rebellion. I think it came out of the fact that in Switzerland, Switzerland was neutral, so people had a bit more freedom, but they still felt oppressed during the First First World War Mm -hmm. kind of time. And so basically, they pushed against it in a way to find something joyous. Uh, They wanted to kind of make something enjoyable and find an escape. I think that seemed to be a recurrent theme in the exhibition with this idea of art as an escape and Mm -hmm. as a kind of therapy to create beautiful things. And it also was a reaction to international conversations, like more kind of influences coming in from across the world and stuff like that, and a bringing together of all these aesthetics and a kind of what I think came out over up until the 60s this embracing of nonsense as rebellion yeah which i love and this had sort of there's a through line from like the poetry of edward lear and this kind of all this stuff playing into yeah this structured idea of nonsense i suppose yeah absolutely and when you think about that in terms of a wartime situation lots of rules lots of restrictions lots of kind of no travel all these things it's a real Kind of, it is a real rebellion. It is mm. a real radical act. I saw that she didn't like the rad- word radical applied to it. <laughs> she, she prefers cool. <laughs> <laughs> Such an 80s skater thing to say. Oh, no, we're talking about 1920. Um, so she didn't like the word radical for no, her work or generally about the movement? She was ridiculous or something like in the okay. film. She's like, I don't know why they say uh, radical. Yeah. I'm not a radical. Where's that come from? Emma Rose is throwing back her shoulders. Her nose is slightly in the air as she says that. I like it. She's, it's a good posture. It's a good posture to poo-poo radicalism. Um, and Zurich at this time, so, so Sophie Toybert Art was a Swiss artist. As we say, she, she was fairly... Um, uh, she was on the move around Europe during that time, necessarily escaping war and, 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 and Nazi Germany and things like this as well. But... 
Um, what about Zurich at the time? We kind of we saw you sort of people kind of suppress a snigger of you kind of go, oh, yeah, it was where it was, it was where it was all going on. You know, it was about the, the centre of nonsense and great creativity. Spiegelgas was there, the Cabaret Voltaire was, yeah. and it was the sort of heart. It was the heart and soul of this. What what was what was it about Zurich? I wonder that was at that time that, that was pushing out artists of the of the ilk of Sophie Toibarak. I think, and I could be wrong, I think it's this combination of um, being kind of in the middle of a war but not involved in a war or any kind of oppressive situation. So you've got the kind of um, wherewithal and you've got the kind of objectivity to make something amazing, but you kind of can't, you're kind of alone, you're trapped Mm -hmm. there. So you just have to make something there. And I think we can see kind of like influences of things like bright young things, like the amazing costumes. The roaring 20s kind of stuff. I think that's where it came from. Kind of like maybe everyone wanted to rebel a bit, but they could. They had the wherewithal to do it. And it was off the back of the First World War and there was all this kind of let this not happen again, let's create systems whereby this can't happen and... I suppose it was more of a socialist outlook and these this all played into these things uh, as well. There was a really good show at House and Worth a couple of years ago in London. Gianni Yetzer put it on and it was about the Spiegel gas and about Dadaism. And he said that Switzerland was so sort of safe and sane that all the it could promote madness because it, it wasn't scared of going mad itself. Is there any... I thought that was a really well, astute well, point of his. Well, that's interesting because Toiber's sister was actually undergoing analytical psychology... Um, with Carl Jung in 1913 and founded the Zurich Psychology Club in 1916. So they definitely were like either worried about going insane or trying to stay sane. Okay. And then the, <laughs> keep taking the, the pills. <laughs> but the Psychology Club in Zurich was where they did latest jazz dances and the Charleston and the tango. So, you know, there was definitely this air of non This never happens in Woody Allen movies. No, I know. And, you know, it seems like um, maybe it's a Jungian thing to do, to dance collectively. But it, it, it definitely has this air of abandonment, which we don't associate with Zurich. I mean, but the Cabaret Voltaire is still going strong. It wasn't a couple of years ago that... Mm. Um, friend of ours, Rob, did a, quite a wonderful performance there, sort of making love to a guitar on the floor uh, in yeah. the Cabaret Voltaire. And, you know, these things still happen, but we, we associate it with a different era, obviously. You know, Zurich's very sort of safe and um, well-mannered nowadays. But, uh, yeah, you're right. It was a rebellion. That's, you know, that's the, the tone of, of what was going on. But weirdly, that there's this kind of light-hearted thing to Dada, you know, yes, it's not radical, but it's something else. And I, I wonder that that lightheartedness might have also inflected on her work, made it f- seem like she was just kind of moving through these different gears, different materials, making tapestries. There was nothing really serious about it. And I think there is a problem with some Dadaists that they were just kind of dismissed as being ridiculous. Or, like sort of smoke in the wind kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, not not real kind of, not like Le Corbusier or someone very serious and dedicated to their craft. It was sort of more kind of, you know, that roaring 20s idea of just sort of situationist frippery. as well. Yeah. Yeah. But I thought what I found interesting was coupled with the sense of kind of almost gaiety, which I felt like ran through her work and this sense of dynamism, of movement, even through static pictures to the marionettes that seem to be very dynamic works, was this kind of real kind of study of tension and relationships. I got a little bit obsessed with the tension studies that she did, looking at relationships between colours and between shapes, and then just seeing how that seemed to evolve 
into things like the stained glass windows and the rooms and then the paintings. I thought that was fascinating. There seemed to be something in her that was kind of very dedicated and mm. very kind of specific. Yeah, and I think I think maybe that was why this kind of association with the dancing gaiety may not have done her any favours because actually these are very sort of even more than clay, like very serious colour studies, blocks yeah. of colours moving through into tapestries into you know applied arts but also kind of always coming back to this idea of geometry of sort of there is some rigor uh, yeah through the stained glass and then eventually to these kind of circular motifs and reliefs. yeah and the reliefs and things which yeah. are amazing so we, we've talked about the the background to sophie toiber arps work let's talk about the work itself and when we talk about sophie toiber up what are we talking about because we've said that she was multidisciplinary but is there something that is she's sort of best at as it were is there something that she should be remembered for is it is it these tensions i mean i'm looking here in the catalogue from the exhibition and maybe i'm just a philistine but i was kind of like like paintings. Uh, you know what I mean? I mean, there's something understandable about this. And you go, oh, you're making things in beads, you're doing ceramics, you're doing curtains and different, all sorts of different things. What's the sort of meat and potatoes, Amarose, of her work? Or is it silly to discuss her work in those terms? Uh, I don't think it's silly. I think that if I was going to really define one thing I'd say that she was a master of colours and shapes but that mm -hmm. sounds really basic <laughs> <laughs> that's no I know exactly what you mean that's what she is and as you say making these exploring the tensions between these things yes absolutely but she just seemed to be one of these people like a real kind of like somebody who could apply those skills very fluidly and easily looking at the exhibition to all these different practices like even architecture design her house she designed their house yeah you know they got off given this opportunity to design a hotel a mm. building and they did that and it was fantastic they seemed to be able to her and i think it's very clever how they didn't really mention hands even mm. when they had mm. obviously collaborated on certain things, which was nice. She was celebrated in her own right. It was Sophie Toberalp's husband. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he will not be mentioned. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> but that was interesting because that house that she built was paid for by her commission. So actually she was probably in some way commercially more successful. Yeah. But I think because she was doing everything, it's hard to pinpoint you know, where her specific skill was because you could look at these and say, well, there's a little bit of you know, Le Corbusier, and there's a bit of Kandinsky, there's a bit of, you know, mm. even Perrion, there's lots of different things going on. But th I think the thing running through is, is there's a modular approach to everything. It starts from a small shape or a colour and then it grows and, you know, it has a sense and it has a force and an energy that carries through. But I think that's hard to see unless you see it all in one exhibition. You know, probably looking at her work does make her look like a comparison with other contemporaries or colleagues or, you know, the men of the time or whatever, I think that might have also been one of the reasons why she was never given this big retrospective deal. I mean, it's also true to say that, you know, in these cavernous tape modern spaces, some of the work looks quite slight because we're talking about sort of, you know, head size sculptures, you know, hand size watercolour type prints and, you know, drawings. So, there's nothing bombastic about her work. You know, she did work on larger scale, but not that we can really see it here. And I think sometimes those Tate Modern spaces do, you know, they're very masculine, they're very big, they're very unforgiving. And I feel like some of the work does look a little bit dainty in that 
in that yeah. space, yeah. But, but there's a lot of it, you know. It was nice to see the thing rather than do, rather than recreating a stage because you know there, there could have been a recreation of a stage set or things like this. I kind of like just seeing the studies and the original artifacts rather than vamping it up and making it into a yeah sort of. Do you know what I mean? I didn't want it to be like a, a theme park of of her work. It's kind of nice to see it, and and weirdly in that space, I thought it was. I came out kind of with lots. I thought there was lots to think about, but not not necessarily. I didn't feel bashed over the head with this work. No, no, it wasn't overwhelming, yeah. which was good. And I think just thanks lead- for defining what I was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> but leading on from what Ossian was saying, I think it's worth going digging around in the vitrine, <clears throat> so to speak, mm. and having a look at some of the small objects because I think that's just really where you got these kind of joyous little kind of things like the handmade lace and things, which yeah. I think is really I was just blown away by it because it combines all these different disciplines and influences, you know, international, national and craft and art but then it's definitely her i sort of teed that question up when we talked about the sort of the kind of great vast diversity of her work does it mess up your reputation in the long term i'm rose to be th- so diverse i think it can do but i think it's down to us as documenters of artists to stop that from happening or should i've asked the question no yeah i yeah. think it's a great question because i feel like that seemed to be so much the spirit of the time and it seemed to also be very it's it was a scene it was an international scene there's a lot of letters and writing and publications but it was a scene and if you're involved in a scene of any kind usually there's so many different facets to it there's music there's performance and that's what's exciting so it's kind of like a bit unfair to be a really great protagonist in a scene and kind of be really involved and contribute all these things and go, well, right, so you, you've done too much, so you, we can't kind of, you can't take anything from it. Yeah. Seems a little bit unfair. I think, um, and I do think that's just maybe how people make connections over time. Yeah, like, people want to go, oh, he's the guy that did this. Oh. He's the guy that, I mean, he's the Guernica guy. He's the he's the night watch guy, right? That that's how people think about it. Exactly, but then I feel stuff, like I lots of artists nowadays, um, not well, a few, are really multidisciplinary. I think mm. it's something that's really come back, and mm. I think sometimes it's out of necessity. Like some of her um, works, like you know the big job and the hotel, like as you say, it made them able to build a house and have people over and create a kind of. Um, a place where artists could come and live and stay with them and create. And I think it's more real because in order to make things work a lot of the time, you've got to do a thousand things. Yeah. Like if you're an artist, you're doing like, I mean, if you're not kind of working in a cafe, you're designing a building if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you're right, though. It is it is that thing. It's And there's an element of, um, I suppose that was the spirit of Dadaism as well, about which there were rules. But there was a bit of how much mud can you fling at a wall mm. and what sticks. And we see, this, we see the stuff, stuff that sticks in exhibitions like this. This is all the good stuff, right? Well, we think about it as being this time of unfettered expression and abstraction. But actually, she probably felt the pressure to, like, match up to the big boys and make paintings and make objects that would work in that setting, whereas she was quite happy working on a loom or working, you know, on an architectural design or on a marionette, which people were like, well, you know, you can concentrate on the minor arts if you must, but, you know, you still need to produce wonderful works and so Mm. weirdly now looking back at it you can see what her style was what her sort of where her place is but at the time it probably wasn't that obvious you know I think because of everyone she was surrounded with and you know her friendship with Sonia Delorne there are similarities there so and you know she only just recently had that big Tate survey which again you know 
highlights the fact that a lot of these artists, Annie Albers, you know, they're being reclaimed, they're being given the proper dues. But I think, unfortunately, she kind of got buried, not not least by her husband's efforts to give her a catalogue raisonné that didn't mm. have all the stuff in it that it should have had. But just because of the the weight of what what else was going on and the, and the art history that got written. But there were exceptions, you know. Le Corbusier did the architecture, did the modular. But we stuff. looked at, but we we always we, even with Le Corbusier, you know, you cut, we sort of people sort of huff a bit about the art. True. And love because they love the buildings, yeah. don't they? Yeah. Because he, even he wasn't allowed. To, he, even he had to be a specialist. That wasn't his thing. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. wasn't so great at the painting, yeah. but you know, at least we had the buildings. Yeah. I, I think there's definite, you know, for all its freewheeling nature, these modernists were sort of trying to purify or trying to get to some place, and and that didn't suit her practice, which was super, you know, freewheeling and super open and open ended. Just before we go to uh, further reading. Quick question for you both about the marionettes and the marionette theatre in Zurich. We had the, the, the characters from a sort of comedy based on Freudian psychoanalysis. Let's be honest, how funny do we think that was? <laughs> I mean, you're talking Swiss funny, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, it was called the Stag King Stag or something. There was quite yeah. a lot of sort of natural forms coming out of these these heads but it's they always bit... give me the absolute creeps these these sort of dardarous marionettes yeah definitely like the, flying at you the, like, yeah yeah just... sort of hat like the, the sort of yeah they look they look spooky what's that sort of that sort of, sort of doctor who kind of budget robot with six arms and six legs as well where scary. are they anyway um, yeah, do, do, Amores, is it, 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 it do you think it would tickle your fancy <laughs> <laughs> tickle your funny bone <laughs> Think it, yeah, maybe in the wrong way, but like, <laughs> but yeah, I, I I kind of I like the big flying bee type thing in a dress. Oh, yeah. I like that. Last scene in much. The Simpsons. Yeah. But she was like an expert wood turner on a lathe. Yeah, she was incredible. Yes. I did, loved her reliefs know, and yeah. stuff. And where did yeah. that come from? No one else was doing that, and yet they were also like a hat stand or uh, oh, the Dada heads. Yeah, this one was a powder box. You know, that you right. could open it up. Had yeah. a function as well. They're beautiful. Those yeah, things. amazing, yeah. and came out of nowhere. No one else was doing that you know even legere's round forms weren't kind of three-dimensional at that point so i think probably a lot of people looked at her practice and were just puzzled by it as much yeah. as anything you know i love that show though i didn't know like lots of people i expect i didn't know much about her having heard heard her name but it was really nice to it was wonderful to go and see something without preconceptions i suppose as well and see such a wealth of different things hard to make it a blockbuster but it's certainly yeah. kind of like elegant and worth spending time there yeah well, thank you very much for your thoughts and, 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 and insights on the Sophie Toiber ARP. And now we're going to turn to what it made you think about. And Amarose, we're going to come to you first. Okay. And you wanted to talk about an exhibition that explored Dadaism's African roots. Yes, because um, I was actually there for something completely different. I was in Zurich for Manifesta oh, yeah. in 2016. And I had to go and report on, an, on a kind of artist that was turning the... Um, fecal waste of Zurich into a huge sculpture <laughs> but as well as that while I was there <laughs> is that literally polishing turds it was <laughs> and there was so much of it oh, so, let, I do remember hearing about this but um and uh, while I was there I saw this show um which was it was so they were celebrating the uh, 100th anniversary of Dada centenary and they had this show on Dada Africa and it was looking at um the kind of correspondence between objects coming over, being collected and brought into Europe that then influenced Dada and they had um, a lot of Hannah Hock 
collages which used images from Europe, from Africa, and they kind of just put everything next to each other. One thing that I thought was really interesting about that exhibition was that apparently they tried to show it all together at the time, but people were a bit kind of, it was too much for them. Even though you could see the similarities, people were a bit like, but, but, but they didn't, they weren't ready. They didn't want to make the connection <laughs> yeah. or something, right. Yeah, they found it a bit kind of, it was like Dada was enough <laughs> Yeah. <okay>. without <laughs> without kind of <laughs> trying to put it all to, on one kind of level, which apparently they did try and do it. It wasn't like a kind of a pastiching mm. of the culture, which I thought was interesting. But it was just really beautiful objects and looking at things like the kind of wonderful beaded necklaces that Sophie Toiba Arp made and... Um, but next to kind of maybe Maasai, those wonderful beaded uh, yeah. Maasai necklaces, yeah. which are quite similar. And what I thought was really fascinating about the show is it wasn't kind of like a takedown. It was just kind of like, look at what they did with it, because it was a real combining of aesthetics with different craft techniques. And it really, really interesting. And um, yeah, I, I advise anyone to have a look at That's that. That's really interesting. I wonder if there was a big show, you know, there was such a craze for kind of Japaned boxes and things that came out of things that were inspired by the pharaohs and things after Tutankhamun's tomb was found and things like this. Was there a sort of show of West African, East African, whatever, African art of some description for people to riff off in that, in that day and age, I wonder? Or, Artifacts were being brought over from what was still the colonies, or well, I wonder where how that where that came, what the cross pollination was. You know, yeah, I mean there was a massive obsession, this pseudo anthropological idea that you know you could study these cultures and gain some primitive knowledge. It was this kind of bataille, early uh, yeah. modernist, yeah. Uh, you know, even Andre Breton collecting masks, and you know that that was. Now, I'm interested to hear that it wasn't a takedown because now we look at that sort of anthropological, social gaze. Ethnographic thing. Very, yeah, very yeah. ethnographic, very sort of of its time and actually possibly, you know, not really well thought out at all. But it's interesting to draw a positive out of that, you know, to show yeah. that there was a positive engagement, not just a kind of gaze. Absolutely, and I think this is what they were trying to say here, though. I think... It, but. But not completely explain away, but to say it just wasn't, it wasn't just that, it wasn't simply that. And it's interesting to see, with the masks, it's interesting, but then also kind of with sculpture and the way that it was kind of like transferred, I think that into kind of, at one point during the exhibition, you couldn't really tell the difference between the two. It was kind of very, very similar, but I never got the sense that, oh God, this is just like a kind of... um, pastiche yeah. Or, yeah yeah exactly okay so that was dada africa thank you Amarose, rose very much indeed for shining a light on that ossian you're introducing a new artist represented by listen yeah about whom are we talking her name is olga de amaral and i thought i'd mention it because she's a textile artist and makes tapestries woven art she's from bogota colombia she's approaching or in her 90th year and been making work since the 60s and very much of that era was looking at... I mean, I guess it, it looks minimal to some degree. You know, they're, they're hanging, wall-hanging or free-hanging installations. And obviously there's a sort of uh, relationship to what was going on at the time with earthworks. She made these dried leaf pieces that she would um, scatter, you know, these large tapestries scatter over over rocks and over um, hillsides and she made works to go on buildings, you know, very much sort of a a larger scale uh, as well as installations. But it all came down to this kind of act of weaving and the weaving happens, 
you know, with like horse hair and linen. And then she would almost paint over that with, with gesso. So creating a painted surface and then sometimes apply gold leaf, cut them all up into strips and then sort of weave them back into a big tapestry. So there was a lot of labour going on. There was sort of um, interestingly like a studio practice that she kept up as an artist, which was fed by making you know, domestic objects and rugs and things, you mm-hmm. know, almost out of a sort of workshop as well, working with lots of other women in Bogota. So a really interesting context and yet also a bit like uh, Sophie Talbot Arp sort of ignored a bit in her lifetime or put into a bracket of decorative arts. I mean, there's works in lots of great collections, but it's sort of, again, it's only now becoming... Uh, this moment where we can appreciate the textile or the embroidery or the tapestry as freestanding works of art rather than kind of this minor arts um, obsession that was, you know, throughout the 20th century. So it's interesting. We've just started working with her. We'll have exhibitions coming up. There's a big touring show opening in Houston called To Weave a Rock, a sort of retrospective of hers, which opens Good title. in 10 days' time. Yeah, <laughs> and we'll travel... To Cranbrook, where she she studied in Cranbrook, this sort of uh, design um, faculty, which is very famous for that. But you know, it's hard to kind of piece together. Similarly, you know, where where one fits her in because she was working at the same time as the minimalists and the the land artists, but you know, wasn't necessarily uh, in the same breath as them. And yet, what she's created, you know, has this long legacy. We hope of of you know becoming incredible objects you know that you can sort of some of them are very transparent so you can kind of see through them so it's a classic listen you know these are objects they're sculptural in a way it's a yeah i think that's interesting also to think about where it fits in our program because yes it's it's not um it's not pure minimalism you know a lot Mm. of these things are gold they're sort of lustrous there's uh they're very handmade you know they're not difficult cold imposing objects in that way but Certainly, when they're hopefully when they're installed beautifully, you know they'll 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 manage to compete with that kind of work, you know that we that we're used to. So, um, yeah, we're just working with her family in Colombia and trying to work out the best way to sort of show these things. But hopefully, the re- the American retrospective will also sort of introduce her again to audiences. Perfect. So Olga de Amaral is a new signing uh, from Listen Gallery. Um, check her out in Houston. And elsewhere, and presumably coming up at the London space uh, first in East Hampton. Oh, okay. You've got to have an East Hampton space in summer. And oh yeah, then, and sorry. Then in, <laughs> and then, How gauche of me! I know. Not to mention it. And then in New York um, in November, sort of like in the autumn, we'll have yeah. a proper exhibition. But um, yeah, it's all about pop-up spaces at the moment. So yeah. find okay. us there or pop elsewhere. up to East Hampton. Yeah, we, we shall. <laughs> Um, and that brings us to the end of today's episode of Monocle on Culture. My thanks to my guests, Amma Rose Abrams and Ossian Ward, and of course to my producer, Holly Fisher. The Sophie Toiber Arp, you say Toiber, I say Tauber, let's call the whole thing off. Retrospective is open at Tate Modern now, and it's on until the 17th of October. Join us next week, where we'll be speaking to the musicians Laura Marling and Mike Lindsay, who together form the band Lump and have an excellent new album coming out. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.